Well, we are uh, continuing our series on the Psalms uh, this morning, and we're in the final stretch. Uh, we got one more Sunday after this one, um, and, and wrapping up this series. And as Pastor Brandon mentioned last Sunday, uh, we're in this section where we're looking at Psalms of praise. And Psalms of praise are exactly what it says. Uh, they are Psalms that invite us to give God praise in light of something he's done, right? It's seeing God do something, maybe in the past or in the present, being moved by what he's done, and then responding by giving him what he deserves, what he is worthy of. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalms of victory. And Psalms of victory are specifically moments in history, Psalms that invite us to remember something that God has done, God rescuing his people, delivering his people, saving his people, demonstrating his power over his people, and recognizing that he alone is worthy of praise and worship, key word being alone, that there is no one, nobody like him. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 29, and we're going to go section by section so Psalm chapter 29, verse 1, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, it's up on the screen. It says, a psalm of David, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord do, glory, do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Now David starts off this psalm by getting straight to the point. Verse 1, he says, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Right? So here he is addressing the heavenly beings. Other translation says, you mighty ones. And this is a Hebrew word that's actually translated most of the times in the Old Testament in reference to the pagan gods that were prevalent in their day. So this is fascinating that David is inviting us into this psalm by initially bringing to mind, getting us to think about all the other gods in our world today. He says, address them. Think about them. Ascribe to the Lord all you heavenly beings, you mighty ones, all you other gods Ascribe to the Lord. Now, to ascribe means to give credit where credit is due, to recognize what is worthy of recognition. So he's saying, all you other gods, give credit to Yahweh. Give credit to the one true God. Honor him. Lift him up. He says, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Right now, there's recognize Yahweh's glory. Recognize his strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Right? Recognize the glory in his name. And the idea of name here isn't just a title, but the name represents one's identity, character. Right? Think about who God is. Think about what he's done, what he's capable of doing, and give him the glory. Give him the credit. It says, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Right, bow down and worship the one true God. Right now, this is clearly good old-fashioned Hebrew Old Testament trash talk. 
right? Trash talking is biblical, right? David is saying, all you other gods, you ain't got nothing on Yahweh. Bow down and worship him. Now, we have to remember, right, that David is writing for a group of people, Israelites, who were immersed in a world that believed in the existence of, of several gods. Right? It was a, a time in history where people assumed and believed that, that life was ruled by, by the gods. And thus, in order to, to have a good life, your livelihood, your well-being, it was dependent on your relationship with all these gods, your interactions with them. Right? So there were gods of love, gods of fertility, gods of the weather, gods of war, gods for pretty much everything and anything. Israel itself was born out of that belief system. Right? Abraham came out of a family that believed in several gods. Majority of Israel came out of Egypt, which believed in multiple gods. And thus the idea that there was only one god that would have been a concept that was brand new for a lot of Israelites. Right? It was a concept that had to be introduced. It had to be taught. It had to be reinforced, not just something that was assumed. Right? And it makes sense that in an agrarian society, right, a culture that was so dependent on things like the weather, rain, and sunshine, there would be a belief and a dependency on all these gods. And thus for Israel, right, we understand why there was this constant struggle for them to stay faithful and devoted to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Right? It wasn't that they had a hard time believing in Yahweh. They believed in him. They just had a hard time not believing in the other gods too. Right? It's like going to Costco with the intent of just buying one thing. Right? The, the question isn't whether you're going to go and get that one thing, hopefully, right? You're going to get that one thing. The question is, are you going to get other things too? Right? It's why I know some people who will not allow their spouses to go to Costco by themselves. <laughs> and you see the same way for Israel, right? Their struggle wasn't that they were unsure whether Yahweh could bless them or provide for them. The struggle was letting go of the belief that all these other gods could somehow provide and bless them too. You see, Israel understood that there were tremendous benefits in worshiping and serving Yahweh. They just had a hard time believing that there were zero benefits in worshiping and serving these other gods as well. For Israel, it made sense for, to them to diversify their investments, right? To not put all their eggs in one basket, to cover all their bases, to check off all the boxes. So David continues in verses uh, 3 to 9 in this psalm. He says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory the Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. 
The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. So here David is using the imagery of a, of a powerful storm, right, to communicate God's power and his sovereignty and his might, right? And the emphasis here is on the voice of the Lord, not all of God himself, merely on God's voice, the words that God speaks. And, and the implication here is, is David is referring to God speaking creation into existence, right? And thus the power that rests in God's word and his word alone, in God choosing to reveal himself and how he, he speaks, right? And the imagery David is using is the voice of the Lord is like the raging waters, right? It's like powerful gusts of wind. It's like bright flashes of lightning, terrifying roars of thunder, and what's important for us to, to recognize here is this isn't just David thinking about the coolest way to illustrate God. Yeah, storms are awesome. This is a real creative way, and, and he comes up with this. But rather, this is a very clear, calculated, aimed attack on the other gods in Israel's day. Right? Many of the gods were associated with their ability to control the weather to control the storms. Right? There, were the there was the Mesopotamian god, Hadad, the Canaanite god Baal, who was depicted as riding on the back of bulls holding lightning bolts in their hands. Right here, David says the voice of the Lord, just the voice, is like flashes of lightning. He mentions the cedars of Lebanon, Right, and the cedars of Lebanon was an area known for its trees, its majestic trees. And many people believed that those trees were sacred to the gods. That these gods would actually use these trees to build their own dwelling places up in the heavens because of its strength, because of its beauty. And here David says, the voice of the Lord breaks those cedars in pieces. He says, the voice of the Lord makes the entire region of Lebanon, the entire mountain, all the mountains. Syrian, which is its highest peak. See, so shakes, makes them skip like a calf, Syrian, like a young wild ox. What David is saying, what, what all these other gods view as powerful and majestic, the voice of the Lord causes them to, to shake and tremble like a, a newborn baby. It says the voice of the Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh, right? The desert of Kadesh is where Israel wandered for 40 years because they were unsure whether they would be faithful and devoted to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And then verses 9 and 10, it says, And in his temple all cry, Glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. And this is the climax of this psalm. What the psalmist is saying is that in light of what God has done, in light of what he's capable of doing, 
all of you other gods, gather in his temple and give him glory. Recognize his worth. Give him the worship and the praise that he deserves. Bow down to the one true and living God. And David points to one singular event in history to validate and support this claim. The flood. The flood. Right? What he's in essence saying is that the flood by itself, one moment in history, not to mention all the others, but this singular event, God demonstrating his power over the waters, first in creation, but more specifically, more visibly in the days of Noah, God causing the waters to rise and then recede, not only demonstrates his justice and his righteousness, his mercy, his compassion, but it also demonstrates, first and foremost, his power and his sovereignty over all creation. So when you think about the flood, recognize that God alone is king over the earth, over the heavens, that he is deserving of our worship and our praise, our loyalty, and our devotion. Verse 11, he wraps it up by saying, The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Now there's two things that David is communicating here. One that's clearly stated, the other is implied. The first thing that's clearly stated is it's the Lord who gives strength to his people. It's the Lord who blesses his people with peace. And the idea of peace is not just the absence of conflict. It's this idea of shalom. It's wholeness, completeness, peace, it's joy, it's inner prosperity. And David is saying, why is Israel so strong? Why has Israel been successful? Why do we have this shalom? It's because the Lord gives it to his people. That's clearly stated. But what David is also implying is that it's nothing else, no one else. That our strength, our blessing, our peace, our joy, it comes from God and no one else, nothing else. As many of you know, a couple weeks ago, the Golden State Warriors won their fourth championship in like seven years. And immediately after the finals, sports writers, analysts, the odds makers in Vegas, right, they determine and poll and discuss and take a survey of who they think will win the NBA Finals the next year. Right? And as soon as the finals were over, they predicted that it would be the Golden State Warriors again who would win the finals in 2023. Now one can you know, only assume, right, that as these writers and these analysts and these odds makers are considering who would win next year, they not only have to consider the Golden State Warriors, right? They have to, to look at what the Warriors will have, who they'll have. To the, okay, Steph Curry will be coming back. Klay Thompson will be back. Yeah, they're getting a little older, but they got young guys coming up. And think about the Warriors. But they also need to consider all other 29 teams, too. They have to look at the other 29 teams. They have to look at their personnel, they have their rosters, their strengths, their weaknesses, what they can do. And thus, in making the decision that the Warriors will be the best team next year, what they're also saying is that none of these teams will be the best team next year. You see, that's what David is inviting us to, to reflect upon in this psalm. 
not only what God can do in light of what he's done, but to think about what the other gods can do in light of what, what they've done, in light of what we've seen. Right? And this is a psalm, you know, we've reiterated throughout this series, right, that psalms were, were songs that were meant to be sung. God's people coming together and singing this. Right? And it's, it's fascinating that here is a psalm where we are invited to sing and address the other gods in this world, in our lives. To recognize that Yahweh is worthy of praise and worship, but to also recognize that no other gods are worthy of praise and worship. No other gods are worthy of our devotion, of our sacrifice. And the purpose being to, to strengthen our, our faith, to strengthen our trust, our hope, our confidence in God and in God alone, but to also remove whatever trust, whatever hope, whatever confidence that we've begun to place in other things, perhaps other gods, other idols. And thus the challenge for us, the invitation for us is to discern. Who are those gods? What are those gods in our lives today? What are those gods in our culture, in our world? And by gods, I don't simply mean other religions, but it could be anything. It could be everything that people turn to these days, things that people depend on, things that people pursue after for things like confidence and security, for things like value and worth, a sense of importance, significance, for things like happiness and fulfillment. Right? What are the things in our life, in our world, that promise us a better life in exchange for our devotion, in exchange for a sacrifice, the giving of time, the giving of energy, the giving of resources, right? Things in this world that, for whatever reason, we feel better when we have them than when we don't have them. Right, for instance, I know the last few weeks have been crazy that one day, let's say, the stock market crashes and we feel this, this angst, this, this worry, this fear. The next day, it rebounds and we feel, we feel comfort. We feel a sense of peace. Or maybe it's grades academically or our kids' grades. Right, they get an A-plus on their test and we're like, good, life is good. On track, Ivy League, here we come. A minus, oh my gosh, what has happened to my kid, right? Maybe it's sports, our favorite professional team. Maybe it's our kid's basketball team, soccer team, baseball team. They win, our kid does well, and it's like, yes, we're on top of the world. Maybe they lose, they have a bad game, and there's anger, there's frustration, right? Maybe it's like that when it comes to material possessions or relationships, right? And it's different for each and every one of us. Right? And, and none of these things are bad in and of themselves. A lot of these things are good in and of themselves. But the question we have to ask is, why do they have so much power over what we feel, what we experience? Right? Why do we feel so good when we have them and when those things are going well, and why do we struggle so much when we don't have those things? 
when those things aren't going so well. You see, this psalms of victory, like the psalm today, is an invitation to not only consider God's worth and the praise and worship that he deserves and to give him the thanks and the praise that he deserves, but to also consider the other gods, the other idols, the things of this world, and to recognize that they are not even close to who God is and what God can do. As uh, many of you know, I kind of shared with you over the last couple months or so that um, I've been taking a class on world missions. I've been on a course and I'm just praying about, right? Just thinking about, praying about the possibility of going overseas on missions for this summer. Uh, well, just to update you, uh, in a couple weeks, I'll be leaving for the Middle East. I'll be there two weeks with, with six others, and um, I definitely appreciate your prayers. Uh, during that time, I'll be leaving July 16th. Uh, but if you were to ask me a year ago, right, would I ever consider going on missions to a place uh, uh, that is hostile to Christianity, where it's predominantly uh, Muslim, where it is illegal to preach about Jesus? My, my answer would have been, no, probably not. And the answer I would have given, the reason I would have given, would have had something to do in the context of, of safety. Right? It's not safe. It's, it's dangerous. Married, I, I have young kids. Now, just to be clear, you know, for the sake that my mom and dad are sitting right there, I don't want to try to be, you know, over, I'm not trying to be overdramatic. Uh, you know, we've been assured that safety is, our, is a priority, that we are going to areas, areas that are safe, uh, relatively safe, just like anywhere else in, in the world. So that, that being said, you know, want to assure you that safety is a priority. But I'm just sharing with you just the process that I had to go through internally to get to, to where I'm at. Right, and one of the challenges for me, one of the worries, the fears, was, was the idea of safety. Right, even my daughters, when I was first telling them that I was thinking about going, even in their little understanding of, of the world, Katie's first question to me was, isn't it dangerous? Isn't it dangerous? So as I was you know, considering this and praying about this, there were two questions that I felt God kind of brought to mind things he wanted me to consider, things he wanted me to, to wrestle with, especially with this idea of safety. And the first question that he prompted in me was, why would I feel safer here than I would there? Why would I feel less safe there than, say, in a place like Japan? Right? If God is with me here and God will be with me there and he would be with me in Japan or wherever, why would I feel more safe in one place and less safe in another? Right? Because if I'm placing all of my trust, if I'm placing my sense of safety and security in God and in God alone, then shouldn't I feel equally safe regardless of where I'm at? Or have I placed my sense of safety and security 
in God and in other things too. Maybe things like familiarity, comfort, geography, culture, whatever it might be. Why would I feel less safe there than I do here if my trust is in God and in God alone? So that was one question that I had to wrestle with and that I continue to, to wrestle with somewhat. But the second question, and this was perhaps the harder one, the second question I felt God kind of press to me was, why does safety matter? Why does my safety even matter? How much should my safety matter? I remember taking one of the courses was on the, the topic of suffering for the gospel. And in that class, we were reminded of just the countless numbers of Christians throughout history who have suffered for Jesus, beginning with Jesus himself, who died on a cross for us, the apostles, all but one martyred because of their faith, the early church persecuted, many of them arrested, imprisoned, put to death. All of the, the missionaries who have sacrificed their lives because God sent them to share his gospel with people who had never heard. And thus I was reminded that we do have a God who calls some people to suffer for his gospel. And thus it's not out of the realm of possibilities that suffering may be part of, of the equation. And thus, in light of having this God who chooses some people to suffer, why does my safety matter? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about being reckless. I'm not talking about being unwise, right? I mean, it's a good thing to have the wisdom to not put ourselves in unnecessary dangers. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to be safe. But if my desire for safety gets in the way of what God is asking me to do, if my desire for comfort is getting in the way of what God is wanting me to do, if my desire to spend more years on earth with my family is getting in the way of what God is wanting me to do, then what does it say about these things in my life? What have I allowed these things to become in my life if I allow them to get in the way? of what God is asking me to do. At minimum, at minimum, they are things that I've allowed to compete with God for my devotion, for my loyalty, my allegiance, for the throne, the crown in my life. See, what are those things in our lives? Things that are good in and of themselves, but perhaps we give more power to, more authority to than, than it should. What are those things in, in this world, in our culture, that we allow to compete for the throne in our life, compete for our loyalty and our devotion? 
Right? It's the Lord who gives strength to his people. It's the Lord who blesses his people with peace. No one else. Nothing else. So as we close our time this morning, as we move into a time of reflection and worship, let us invite the Spirit to, to speak to us, to show us, are there things in our life are there gods, are there idols that we've allowed to seep in and to compete with God? Things that we've given more power, more authority to than we, we should. And may the Spirit enable us to bring those things to God. May He be the one to remind us and convince us that it's God and God alone who is worthy of our praise. It's God and God alone that who is worthy of our devotion. It's God and God alone who is worthy for us to place our strength and our confidence and our hope and our trust in him and in him alone. Will you pray with me?